0: Urban Strategies presents Black and Brown in America, a conversation between two friends. We are living in important times that call for intentional conversation, awareness, and action to address the realities in the nation's civil unrest. You are invited to join a conversation with Urban Strategies President Lisa Trevino Cummins and her friend, Dr. Lula Balton, as they discuss race in the US today, as well as some tools on how to responsibly respond. Good afternoon. Uh, Sorry we're late getting started here. We had, even though we've prepared for three days on this, we still had de- technical difficulties. Um, but we're going to fight through this and just uh, being the mystic that I am, believing that uh, this must be good because uh, we've got all kinds of curveballs thrown to us in the last 15 minutes even. But uh, we want to welcome everyone for joining us. Um, this is a first live chat that we've done, uh, that I've done in urban strategies. And, um, that's our brother Carl in the background, but we have, um, uh, this first time we do this. And during this season, I, um, as we started it, I thought, what an opportunity for me to introduce my friend Lula, Dr. Lula Bailey Balton. Uh, Lula has, we've been friends for about 25 years and, um, and we have different stories on how we've met. Uh, but um, I'm so thrilled that I get to introduce Lula to all of uh, the friends that we have in Urban Strategies and in our Hispanic communities, et cetera. So let me just say, uh, Dr. Balton, uh, she's an amazing individual. Just in his her professional life, she's been an English professor. She's been an attorney in one of our country's largest, uh, most Uh, high-profile law firms. Um, She spent uh, a majority of her career as the direct executive director of one of the largest community development corporations, uh, faith-based community development corporations, and that would be of West Angeles Church of God in Christ, uh, CDC. Um, And now she's working with churches around the country to help them uh, uh, replicate some of the great things that she was done. Uh, she has done in Los Angeles. So Lula, I am delighted that you're here with us. Uh, thank you for for agreeing to be part of this series of podcasts in such a um, a difficult time in our country. Um, I know that um, this has to weigh heavy on you for so many reasons. Uh, but um, well, but welcome.
1: Thank and you. So, thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Well, Lula, why
0: don't we just start um, uh, from early beginnings? Uh, I know from your background, uh, you have had an incredible faith journey. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, about that faith journey?
1: Well, um, I was born into a very faith bound family. My grandmother's father was born a slave, enslaved in North Carolina. And was extraordinarily bright and made a deal with his master to become a missionary in exchange for his freedom. Mm-hmm. And so his first charge was the Cherokee uh, Cherokee Indians in Oklahoma Territory. His second charge was the Shinnecock Indians in Southampton, Long Island. Um, he married my grandmother, who was also from Arkansas, and um, they went to minister. On the Indian reservation on Southampton, Long Island, that still wow. is there. His name was John Thomas Ogburn. He was fortunate enough to become educated, and he went to uh, Lincoln University in Pennsylvania, and started the um, Christian School for Indian Boys on Long wow. Island and uh, Ogburn Memorial Presbyterian Church, where uh, he was John Thomas Ogburn. So. There wasn't much wavering you know church was a very strong and important part of my life um, all of my family all of my life has been very engaged my grandmother was a, a classical soprano and so she always gave all the little towns we lived in she was the lady that gave the piano lessons to everybody um and she sang it various you know, things and always at the church and choir director at schools and churches. So I really did have a very uh, strong Christian home foundation, um, you know, learn the Bible, learn to read it for myself, got all that as a, a backdrop for all of the things that were going on in my life. And mm-hmm. I believe that that was a part of the thread of, of our family that keeps, most families together. I mean, we people go off and on. We go off and on, but that's the consistency and the constancy of the Lord.
0: Hmm. And so thank you. Yeah. And and you uh, you were part of the Presbyterian church and along the way you I understand uh, you married your husband who was I think he came from Pentecostal A M E.
1: No, neither of okay. us. No, um, but as the Lord would have us, as we pursued His will for our lives, He filled us with the Holy Ghost. And, um, we found that, um, in that walk, we were invited to uh, come to um, a small church of God in Christ, a real small one in Chicago, and that's where we met the Lord at, in uh, His fullness. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were like Acts 19 and 2, we believed but we hadn't received since we believed. And um, the Lord blessed us mightily there. And then we returned to Los Angeles and uh, were part of a little church at the time where Bishop Blake, he was Elder Blake at the time, Charles Blake, who's now the presiding bishop of the Church of God in Christ, was our pastor. Mm -hmm. And uh, from a church of around 100 to 200, it grew to be 25,000. Uh, While we were there, we were very active for over 40 years in West Angeles as it grew. Uh, My husband uh, was chairman of the Deacon Board for more than 25 years. Wow. uh, Head of the Brotherhood Association for the same amount of time uh, as his life work in the church, being a a minister to to, uh, men. And uh, after I left the practice of law and went into ministry at Union Rescue Mission, started a learning center and um, a move to have things for people who were disenfranchised to learn how to do so they could support themselves and not need to do whatever got them in this position. Mm -hmm. And from there, the Lord enlightened me and showed me that um, because people were brown and black, they should not have to end up on Skid Row because they lacked services and resources where where their families were. And so um, I started West Angeles CDC with an idea, $5,000 from the, the um, Mustard Seed Foundation.
0: Oh, how about and they that? They help
1: non, nonprofits, any faith-based nonprofit that wants to start, that has a good plan, um, you get a $5,000 grant if you apply. Right. And so with that, um, the pastor gave me a... a a stipend, and I started the CDC.
0: How about that? Didn't know that. Shout out to Brian Bucky with the Mustard Seed yes. Foundation. Uh, so Lula, you mentioned Skid Row. You saw the inequities and um, in what? Uh, just kind of at the at, at the, the point, point of des- destitution. You saw black and brown uh, folks who were who were in need of services. Uh, that's not the first time that. Uh, you saw black and brown uh, kind of in a difficult situation. In fact, I think you shared some stories about at an early age uh, and we are, and and our discussion is, uh, is really focused on that space. It's the intersection between church and race. And so So, uh, I think think you're you're one of those, several of those stories
1: are apropos for what we're talking about today. Would you mind sharing them? Oh, I don't mind at all. Um, when I was very young, things still had white signs and uh, colored signs, uh, no Mexicans or dog signs um, across the country. And I lived in um, the Midwest and then the, the South Midwest. And and even when we'd go from Arkansas to California, we'd have to go through Texas, which was also one of the Confederate States. So the, their posture was, was very different for us and um, some of my strongest recollections were not so much when I traveled because where we traveled, we did have a green book. We knew where we could stay and where we could eat and where we were welcome. But on surprises, um, when I was in the first grade, Brown versus the Board of Education uh, became law and they had to integrate schools. And I lived in Springfield, Missouri which uh, is a town that has a very small black population, about 2% at that time. And it was the headquarters of um, the Assemblies of God. And um, I thought it was pretty much a Christian town. I was, a, like I said, I was in the first grade. There's five, I think, Bible colleges there. So there was a level of expectation given my family's background that I had. And uh, my first personal personal encounter was looking at the evening news our local news and watch a pastor and the superintendent come on television and say well for our christian citizens don't worry we fired all the colored teachers your children will not have to be in a room with a colored teacher all day Mm -hmm. and so my mother who was a biologist who had finished graduate school in biology. My grandmother, who was this famous musician that even all the white churches would try to get her to come and sing or play. because she played the pipe organ as well. Suddenly, it was all gone. Mm-hmm. My mother had to wait tables with her master's degree because mm-hmm. she was black. There were three Latino people that lived in the city that I know of, um, it was a couple, a ministry couple, and uh, a student. And in those days, when I was, even when I went away to college, um, I lived across the street by then from Evangelical. Those students who were not white couldn't go, couldn't sleep at Evangel. They paid tuition, they went to classes, They went on mission trips. They then became missionaries, but they weren't allowed to sleep there. And so they had to rent rooms from black people in town who would rent rooms to them. They were from Africa. No matter where it was, if they weren't white, they had to get a room. And Mm -hmm. um, we were able to to rent rooms. But also, I I recall hearing my, my grandmother. My grandfather was a dentist, and he passed. And my grandmother remarried a a, path, a Presbyterian minister, like her dad. <laughs> and I, I remember just kind of, not really Ethan, but listening to them talk about what would those people who've gone there to that school say to the people when they go back home? Mm. You know, would, they, would they tell them, I believe this Bible, but this is how they treated me. This right. is what, what happened. And for a little girl, that's a hard creates a lot of dissonance. I, I didn't know what to, to think or believe, except I knew that those people didn't know Christ. They were not Christians. I, and and so I began to associate, even speaking in tongues, must be something really horrible since they hate everybody who doesn't look like they came from um, Europe. Mm-hmm. And and it was very interesting because there were Ammon people and Mennonites in the area, who were very welcoming, and when they they make no distinction in Christ between the sexes and the, and the races, you know, you can be any of those things. If and the Mennonites particularly, and um, the Church of the Brethren, so I was a little confused, but extraordinarily wounded mm. to see my mother have to do that. And um, you know, eventually things changed and got better, and She was able, and she taught in that town for a number of years. I was young, and you know, by the time I became a teenager, I was ready to go. Uh, But I remember in Springfield not being able even to. um, I I have to go down Division to Fremont. Go around because they didn't want us to touch the college campus Mm. walking to school, so we'd have to go extra blocks around. and so I, I think it's wonderful, a part to me of being um, a Christian and being a Pentecostal Christian is that um, we get to hear from God ourselves. And mm-hmm. so when we we see things that are wrong and don't comply with the Bible, it makes us more responsible. Mm-hmm. We're not in, in lines where the most important thing in, in the denomination is to obey the Pope.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That that's, that tends to be, for me, a part of what separates us from that branch of Christendom is the personal responsibility um, that the Lord puts on us. And, and part of that, when I was uh, practicing law, my office was on the 31st floor of the Wells Fargo building, if you know Los Angeles. And I could see Skid Row that was then on Main Street.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I could see all of these people, um, and I could see the alleys. And so on my lunch hour, the Lord was tugging at my heart, and I would go over. I would pray for women and children. In those days, women couldn't stay at missions anywhere in the country because they were designed for alcoholic men during the Depression. And it was a, a way to bring you know, them in and then hopefully their families. Um, but as you know, that that family model changed, the world changed. But the mission ministry had not changed. And uh, the Lord blessed us to be able to um, work with people who were as eager or or as more as I was to to change some of those things. And he brought a leader to me um, who kept... I would kept going. You guys need to do this. You need to have women. You need to have something for these guys to do besides twelve steps. And you know, mm-hmm. some guys would go, "Oh, you know, it's Friday. I gotta go get saved because I want to have a place to stay this weekend." Mm-hmm. And that's the, the mindset. And they missed, In my heart, they were missing Jesus, trying to get a bed for the weekend. Yeah. And um, in my complaint, Lorraine, the young woman who worked at the mission. And a gentleman who was over that part and knew there, Roberto Cologne, my dear brother in Christ, um, said, well, why don't you come here and do something about it? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. at the time, uh, I didn't go to law school till I was 40. So my family had knuckled under. We had children that were 6, 8, and 11 when I started law school. And I finished, you know, on the regular three years. But... Um, I felt like they didn't put that part of their life on the shelf so that I could do law school for me then to go into ministry and not do the things that having a law degree would provide, resources, right. and experiences, right. and all. But um, the Lord tugged hard. And when I, you know, talked it over with my husband, and he said, Lily, he's gone to school, do what you want to do. Do what the Lord is calling you to do. Hmm. And so that called me to the, to the ministry and then there, Roberto exposed a whole nother world that I was unfamiliar with coming from the Midwest and living in the West. Mm-hmm. I didn't really know many people who were Hispanic who were not a part of the Church of God in Christ. And there are, you know, there's a world of people. Yeah, right, right, right. They often know each other. <laughs> and so, um,
0: well, Lula, I want to go uh, from that to back to the Assemblies of God. You know my background and histories with Assemblies of God. Um, and I remember us having a conversation that, and you actually, you were informed me of this, how Kojic uh, and Assembly of God were actually the same denomination. Um, oh,
1: yeah. Then, um, share a little bit about that. Um, and I found out, Dr. Sherry Benuti, ben Benuti. Who was a professor and chair of the religion department at Vanguard University, which is an AG school, uh, was the first to teach me about it. And she was doing some work at the mission, and she said, "Oh, you know, we started out together." And I was no, I didn't know that. But at um, and she gave me the readings and stuff. But at the Azusa Street meeting, uh, Bishop Mason received the baptism of the Holy Ghost, and he was a holiness preacher from the Midwest, from, um, I think he was originally from Arkansas, but I think his ministry was in Mississippi. But when he came back, he, um, I, I'm sure y'all have said it, all the stuff that happened at Azusa Street. When he came back, he established the Church of God in Christ, and, and they had Jesus left the, so black people. Yeah. It, no, he was African American, yeah. but yeah. the church yeah. was African American and uh, white. It was the people uh-huh, who were in uh-huh. Mississippi and Arkansas. Ten years after all that time, Bishop Mason was the person who ordained them, who um gave them offices. I think they in those days they had overseers and whatever those offices were. They came yeah, from yeah. Bishop Mason. Ten years after the Azusa Street meeting, a group of of uh white men decided they did not want uh, black men, at that time they called it a colored man, to be over them. And so they decided to start their own denomination in Little Rock. And so they moved from the headquarters in Memphis to Little Rock and established the Assemblies of God so that they could have a white Pentecostal church and dismiss the brotherhood so um, interesting in my studies well, I with Sherry she just said that when when people left um their isms a lot of times they don't do the full full job and i think that's probably where that angst came whenever i was in the company of people who were who were professing something in tongues and had this behavior so i associated at that time, speaking in tongues, with anything evil, with anything mm-hmm. that harms anybody, and mm. Um, mm. I, you know, thank God that He gave me an experience that, though I was walking as a Christian, I would never have even considered that part of the body, because I thought yeah. it wasn't a part of the body. Yeah. 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 Interesting, and. Um, on my
0: side, you know, with Hispanic uh, Assemblies of God, H. C. Ball went in, and, and um, the history says that he uh, ministered to those who were um, who were escaping uh, the the Civil War in Mexico. They're they're fleeing for their lives. Interestingly, interestingly, not too different than what's happening at the border in these last several years. But he ministered, and that's the Hispanic church grew. And so there wasn't a split uh, but the uh they de- the Hispanic churches then developed kind of their own segment of the Assemblies of God and and now are, have been the you know have been the fastest uh the most vibrant part of the church particularly in the last 10 15 years. So it's interesting to see that and I think the Assemblies of God um to their credit they have they have embraced the Hispanic church um they uh, during this halt, all of the civil unrest have made some strong statements uh, of lament um, and have um, have have reiterated their commitment to the black community and, and, and people of color. Um, you know, I want to yeah thank the Lord. What so I know that the um, you know racism you experienced at a young age. You're eight or nine. Um, you started recognizing, wow, this is different. And share a little bit about, um, I think you were maybe 13, 14, 15. You told your mother you were going on to a, a band
1: contest. Why don't you share about that and what that meant to you? All my degrees are in public speaking. And when I was in high school, i learned in church, you know, those Easter and Christmas speeches you have to do. I learned to speak there. And when I got to high school, I got involved in forensics. There was debate and interpretation and all of that. So I was always on a debate team. I'm my mother's, uh, then I was my mother's only child. And uh, she was very, very protective, but it was very, very dangerous. When we hear about what happened to boys, um, Emmett Till lived four blocks from us when we lived in Chicago. So we, all of that was always very close to me people died people were maimed people got eyes pulled out you know this is not like back in the 1800s this is in the 60s and 70s so we're talking mm. so i understand her fear but i was determined that i was going to do something so we did not have to live in fear so all mm. the things that we've been hearing recently on on um, in the media about when a, a black kid walks out of the door, he knows there's a target on him, and that he has to maneuver the the stress of maneuvering from about five years old in a way that is not threatening, even if it, uh, whether it's looking in somebody's eyes, whether it's being on the sidewalk, whether it's, you know, any of those things, you have to start being very, very aware. And I was really aware and and determined to change it. And I was very optimistic and these were the years of, of Dr. King and our youth group of our NAACP, um, well all over the country, not just our, They had everybody was going to this big march on Washington. And communities were taking buses. And Springfield of course didn't have anybody going, but I needed to get to St. Louis. I told my mother that I was going on a speech tournament. And she was, you know, it was right before school starts. She was a teacher. She was getting her stuff. That was okay. You know, when you be back? I'll just be back. It's going to go from, I think it was the weekend, like from Thursday night to Sunday. So I got to St. Louis and Margaret Bush Wilson, who was the executive secretary of the NAACP at that time, uh, saw me getting on, you know, the bus. And she said, how old are you? I think it was, well, I know I was 15. I said, (laughs) Eighteen, ma'am. So, <laughs> she, I had ponytails and bangs, <laughs> and, and I, I probably looked at that, you know, white shirt and a pleated skirt. And uh, she had, she said, "Well, where are your parents? Oh, they couldn't, they couldn't make it this time." And uh, she said, "Well, who are you traveling with?" And uh, I said, "I'm, I'm going by myself." And she said, "How much do you want to go?" And I said, rather not live like this. Mm-hmm. I'd just rather not live like this. So she welcomed me on the bus and sat next to me. And it in those days, public there were no public accommodations. That's where we were going. Um, civil rights were focusing on accommodations and jobs and... Um, but this was really so we could, you know, if you had a kid, you couldn't go to the bathroom, you couldn't get any water, couldn't stay at a hotel. You couldn't, you know, so that's why I'm on this bus, but it was one of the most beautiful experiences I've ever had. Wasn't an air conditioned bus, it was hot, it was August, and it was going through the South. We boarded in St. Louis, and there were certainly restaurants and all that were black, but they, they weren't allowed to be on the highway. So we could never stop on the highway. And so in those days, girls um, couldn't go in the bushes in the highway like boys could, you had to carry little jars with Lysol. and So those were our public accommodations until this trip. And um, they sang all the civil rights songs that you hear now, but in a hot bus and everybody was enjoying it. And they brought bags of food for us and they were uh, bologna sandwiches with mustard <laughs> uh, because mayo was spoiled. And this is a, mm-hmm. a two-day trip. You know, uh-huh. just keep going. So we went through Kentucky, then the you know, just over yeah. to D.C. And it was the most moving experience of my life. Mm. I was maybe halfway back the pool. And there were people from, like you see on the streets now, of every ethnic group, every I just had never seen so many, living in the Midwest, never seen so many different looking people. Uh-huh. And we were way back and they didn't have, you know, modern mics like now. They had those big mics up on the front. And we shouldn't really have been able to hear anything with these huge crowd. But I heard every word of every speech. And we were stunned and and we knew that the world was going to change. Mm. because we were together and we were believers and God had convened us. Mm. And so there were some people who did some crazy stuff, but we didn't have cameras everywhere and everything. So it was new, those same people who had seen them let dogs loose on us who had hosed little girls and kicked them in the street, who on their way to church would spit on you. Those people saw us coming with the world. Mm. And in in a passionate plea for believe that God created us all. Mm. And the authority that you've taken to maim, kill, and use people has to be removed. But all I want to do now is to get a little drink. Mm. And it changed my life. It changed Mm. my life drastically. Mm. The other story that I'll quickly share, when I was 11, before that happened, my cousin lived in Memphis, we were both only children at the time, and our mothers were sisters. And so we were like sisters when we get together. Carlene uh-huh. was seven years younger than me. Mm-hmm. I was so excited. She came to visit. So in Springfield, I was taking her around the square downtown and showing her off. And this is my cousin. I was real skinny, and she was real round. And we got to this big department store called Hers, and... Um, She had asthma, and she started to wheeze, and I was scared. And like I said, I was 11, and I'd taken her further than I was supposed to. And we went to um, a dryer in the store and took her to the water fountain. And with everything in me, you know, I heaved her up on my hip and put her up against the water fountain and turned it on and told her to drink some water and cool her off. And I put some on her face, and she wouldn't open her mouth. Mm. And I was like. You're going to die and I'm going to get killed. And oh, I had all this. <laughs> you know, you got to drink, Charlie. You have to drink this water. If you don't, you're going to get sick. And I couldn't hold her any longer. My arms were shaking. I sat her down and I slapped her as hard as I could. And she looked up at me and said, If I drink it, they're going to kill my daddy. Mm. She was five. Mm. She was five years old. And that was my first experience of blaming a victim for their behavior,
0: mm-hmm.
1: not at all looking at why she did that. Mm-hmm. I didn't darling, why won't you drink? Yeah, I said, wham! And so I felt horrid. Wow. But that experience and the experience going to Washington, so everybody could drink anywhere and they could know it, mm. and that. I could do something about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When we tried to to boycott something in Springfield, it was so funny nobody even noticed. a <laughs> so few of us. Nobody knew we weren't coming. So we had okay. We got to do Plan B. But um, those three experiences demeaning my mother and all her work and education, making my five-year-old cousin afraid to drink while she's having an asthma attack. And convening with all kinds of people around the world at the Capitol, where we were welcomed mm. by the president, welcomed mm-hmm. by leadership, and the idea of changing policy so that all Americans feel the breadth of our ability to accommodate and love one another. The
0: mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
1: transformative.
0: The transformative.
1: Well, Lula. In new way thank- of my mind. <laughs> mm.
0: Lula, thank you for uh, sharing these stories. We know that the story doesn't end there. And for that, for that reason, we're going to continue next Wednesday at the same time. Uh, hopefully, we'll have all of our technical issues resolved and, um, and be able to continue and learn from you, learn from your stories, uh, pray that all of us, our hearts would be softened, would be convicted. Um, that we would that the truth would be revealed about ourselves um, and uh, yeah so we're gonna we're, we're gonna sign off thank, thank you so, so much we're gonna my do friend
1: something we're gonna do what Christ called us to do we're amen be about it not just about it right yeah amen sister all right thank you so much and thank you thank for, all you for having me us. my friend yes I love you so much your invitation
0: yeah love you Thank you for listening to our Black and Brown in America podcast by Urban Strategies. If you want to see the video of this conversation, you can visit our Facebook page or visit us at www.urbanstrategies.us.